The battle of Britain is about to begin. episode of Lead Pursuit Podcast. This is Steve, and I am here with everybody's favorite member of the podcast, Brett. What's happening, everyone? How are things down there in uh, the sunshine state? Man, we're still warm down here. It's in the 80s. We're doing great. Looking forward to some cooler November weather. And we are also here tonight with our special guest. Some of you might have met him at Gathering of Eagles New Orleans. Uh, always painting cool stuff and just a blood red skies fanatic. Steve Gusky, how are you doing? Hey guys, I'm doing great. Welcome to everybody out there in podcast land. Thanks for having me on. And doesn't it make you just mad to hear about Brett talking about his November up here in the Northeast with me? I, I'm telling you, brother, I just love it down here where we are in the lovely land of Cleveland with the snow getting ready to come down and hear about the sunshine out there. Awesome. Well, we have Steve on here tonight, uh, and we are going to be doing another aircraft spotlight episode. And we've been planning this for a few months, uh, but we did not realize that Steve Gusky is the only human being on the planet that still did not have google chrome so we got him upgraded from netscape 2.0 up to google chrome and we're going to dive into an episode on the p40 but before we do that let's just uh talk about what we have in store coming up so after the disaster that was crucible in florida getting canceled from the hurricane at least for lead pursuit podcast uh we're getting some of our hobby mojo back and you will be able to find Casey at Millennium Con down in Texas on the 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th of November. Uh, and he will be doing some Blood Red Sky stuff. So make sure you stop in and see Casey and the Warlord guys down at Millennium Con. I don't know if it's going to be anything official. But uh, he will be uh, at least there, and you can touch base with him. And we also are planning Adepticon. So we know that is still kind of far away, but room assignments, uh, room uh, info is coming out. Uh, events are being planned. There will be some awesome Blood Red Sky stuff. There will be some cool Aeronautica Imperialis stuff. Uh, man, I think we're all getting excited for Adepticon again, aren't we, Brett? Yeah, man, after not getting a chance to roll some dice and stuff down in Orlando, we're really going to be Jones and come springtime. Oh man. And we have, you know, we don't really want to spoil the surprise, but I don't know. You think we have some unique events planned for everybody? You know, I'm thinking about if I can make it, I want to bring all my operation Meridian aircraft that I've been collecting over long, uh, warm months of the summer that I was going to show off in Orlando, but the crew from Cleveland is going to try to make it over there. Excellent. Remember last year when we went, there was that grinder thing over in what was that like the, the big hall where they were doing the meat fantasy grinder. battle or something? Yeah, yeah, meat uh, grinder. Are we gonna? You think we're gonna have a something like that for our uh, gathering of eagles participants? I I really think that we are going to have uh, a Friday night. I mean, I guess for lack of a better term, just like a fun fest, right? Just blood red skies themed, but just really trying to accentuate the fun and the camaraderie and uh, just, you know, the reason we all get together to play games, which is just to just to have a good time. You guys think we'll have that tournament going again? Maybe some P38 rules that you were talking about, maybe some changes, but how about a tournament outlook? What do you think? Uh, there, there will definitely be a tournament. Uh, yeah, and I guess for Adepticon, 
Any changes to the, yeah, I mean, man, who knows what the tournament pack is going to bring by Adepticon. It'll be interesting to see what rolls out the first of the year with multi-engine rules. Uh, yeah, man, it's definitely going to be exciting, that's for sure. Fantastic. That's going to be something to be at. Just if everybody can get down there, we can make up for what didn't happen in Orlando. And, uh, man, what has, so what has everybody been working on? Brett, what's on the, uh, what's on the workbench right now? Man, I tell you, my ho- my hobby mojo has been completely blasted since missing Orlando. Uh, you know, I was working really hard getting some stuff ready for that trip. And since that trip was a bust, I haven't picked up a paintbrush since. Um, I still have that Catalina that I need to decal up. And then I've got some Pacific stuff I need to get busy on. I was going to, I was going to paint some green zeros and uh, get my wildcats all painted, but they're still sitting in the queue. I'm sad to say that I haven't, haven't put any paint on them yet. Man. And Steve, I know you've been working on, uh, man, just, I feel like a plethora of aircraft, just like, so, so what do you got on the table? Right now I'm finishing up my 109 case. I thought I'd get some late war. Everything I have is either 1940 or 41 vintage. I thought I'd go to the end of the war and get some high-powered 109s on the table to match those Mustangs. But I read about the Bulgarian Diatween 520s, and they actually went up against some 38s, and they had rocket pods to knock out some B-17s. So I thought about a scenario or two with those. Plus, I have quite a few more Russians to get together um, for the i16s and the i153s and the i15s for china so they will be in chinese colors so a lot of little resin airplanes down on my desk man and you know isn't that you know we i know we've talked about this a lot but isn't that one of the great things about this game like they you get into a rhythm and you can paint up a ton of airplanes quick they look good and man it's just really easy to buy into this system isn't it Oh, it is. And you can go crazy. And if you can find the airplanes online, plane printer or, or at your store, any airplane you're looking for, you can find now. And I think that was one of the drawbacks when it first started. It was just very few airplanes. But now anything you can imagine, you could you could find, paint up and, and put on the table. Man, you're so right. Just an hour a night. You know, of course, it's criminal that I haven't been doing any painting in the last few weeks. But just an hour a night, you can get so many planes done so quickly. I do want to say here, uh, you know, I've been thinking pretty hard and taking some cues from some other hobby people, and we're kind of getting into those, like, dark days of winter. Uh, I'm thinking we might have to do maybe, like, a midweek, kind of like the virtual happy hour, but maybe, like, a painting support group, like a one hour a week on maybe like a Wednesday night or a Thursday night where we all get together and paint and show what we're painting. I think that it could be kind of like a cool activity to get some people, like you said, Brett, doing that, you know, one hour a night and you, you could crank out some cool hobby stuff. And that's all you really have to do. And that's what helped me get that mojo going back is just a little bit. If, even if it's just a decal on a plane or, or the canopy's done, you felt like you did something. And next thing you know, you're working on your next project and your next project. So, when it comes time for the conventions, we all get together. We can just put those little airplanes out and have a good time. I'm all for it, though. Cool, man. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll look into that this winter. And uh, before we get into the main topic, uh, any new kit or game aids or products or mats, like anything new, new or cool that's kind of caught you guys? Any new hobby stuff? Man, I have been seeing a bunch of posts on Facebook, people loving the hobby trays you made up. I saw Dude, another one just man, uh, maybe today. I know, right? Yeah, I'm glad people like them. They're pretty cool. I'm kind of bummed because we didn't get to use them at Crucible. I was like, man, I can't wait to see how this works. But yeah, people people are really, really liking those. And that, that makes me just like super happy. I'm really, really glad people really like those tournament trays. Have you considered doing any kind of like a promotional where, you know, if you if you get your, uh, your Blue Falcon hobby... Uh, airplane tray what, what are they called i'm, I'm forgive me that i'm calling uh, it something. the tournament tray tournament tray okay yeah so get your blue falcon hobby tournament tray before black friday and you get some free neoprene ship targets or something maybe i don't know just throwing that <laughs> okay. free neoprene ship targets are you suggesting that we might like have like a backlog of neoprene ship targets like is that 
Is that something that we've talked about before? Or like, is that just totally off the blue? I, well, I, I thought you said that um, there was a big rush for him in the beginning, but it, maybe it slowed down a little bit. I don't know what the story <laughs> yeah, is Yeah, I mean, that would definitely be... Uh, yeah, we could do that. I, I think some blue falcon black fridays like bfbf sales would be like i'm thinking this is like a marketing genius that's happening as we're discussing it right here this could be this could be something you mean you're not going to throw those neoprene targets on the floor and have us run for them like little kids at a candy store like we did at gathering of eagles i actually have to buy them okay i'm in i'll do it (laughs) yeah how about you how about you steve have you seen any uh like any new kit or anything floating around that you, you've been liking? Not a kit, but I do have something I want to look into. I see the ads on Instagram for that battery-powered airbrush. And, you know, they show it building a, or painting a beautiful 148-scale P40, I think. So I'm thinking about getting that so I can take my portable hobby nook wherever I need to. Right now, if I need to go somewhere, I pack up the whole compressor, but... I need to find out more about that, get some reviews online to see what it's like. I don't know if you've ever seen that. You know, it's funny you mention that. I have seen that, and I have been super curious about how that works for the same reason as you. In the ads on Instagram or wherever you're seeing it, the guy is painting like a beautiful model with it. And yeah. Man, if you get that, I would be be seriously curious into, into how that works. I, I think with uh, some holiday bonus money from work, I, I might just indulge upon that. Other than that, I'm just looking at plane printer and waiting for you guys to put ads out for your new aircraft. And whenever I see that new shiny, shiny, I have to have it. So, uh, you know, I sure hope that we can get some of those. What are I telling you about the Fairy Firefly Mark Ones? Boy, anybody wants to do an STL file for that? That'll make a that'll make a world record purchase for me. Never, I mean, you can never have too many airplanes, right? And uh, with that, the main topic tonight is. You know, it's really a plane that doesn't need any introduction. Uh, the P-40, the Hawk, the Tomahawk, the Kitty Hawk, the War, like whatever you want to call it. A famous airplane, Flying Tigers, Captain Wild Bill Kelso, <laughs> aircraft spotlight on the P-40 coming at you tonight. And uh, yeah, let's let's get into this about the P-40. So just, you know, we like to, you all know, I'm a big believer in history light. So we're going to kind of chip through some of the history of the aircraft just to give you a little bit of, you know, context for the conversation. Uh, we brought Steve on because he's really just, uh, I don't know, I don't think anybody here is an expert on the aircraft, but I know he's a fan of the aircraft. And uh, then we're really going to dig into how this plays in Blood Red Skies. So before we get started, Brett, you want to add anything before we get rolling? No, man, let's do it. Shark's teeth. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows it. I mean, even, I mean, isn't it like those shark's teeth make it the quintessential cool airplane to like kids and just in pop culture? Like it it really is a neat aircraft. So right now, those shark teeth are the whole reason people know about the P-40. In pop culture, non-World War II related, you can find those shark teeth on jackets, on tennis shoes. They've been used everywhere. And that iconic image of the P-40, I think, is what makes it so classic. You talk to the grognards, you talk to the history people, and you find out that, oh, it was a mediocre plane. It really didn't do this or that. And you got to look beyond that because that P-40 was something. It Nothing says America like that Allison engine. I think I sent you that video of that loud P-40 doing a flyby. And you can just tell that's the plane that's going to help us win the war. So if you want to get into it, I can tell you where we're going to start. And that's at the very beginning. Yeah, let's do it. So as just as I and my, you know, tiny bit of research conducted. So it was basically began development uh, because it was really just apparent that the P-36 was not going to get it done. And that's correct. Yeah, P-36 came out. It was the U.S. standard fighter at the time. Uh, The Curtis Wright Aircraft Company came up with this great idea. This plane, although it was the backbone of U.S. aviation for a short amount of time, uh, the U.S. government knew that with the war drums sounding on the horizon, they needed to put out something to get uh, another fighter in production. And they, they put out the bids for it. Some of the other aircraft that we all know and love, the Lockheed, Lightning, 
even the Bell P39 Air Cobra, they were quote unquote better, but they just didn't have the, uh, they were too technologically advanced. They didn't have that speed of, of construction of getting it out there that, that Curtis was able to do by taking that standard P36 and modifying it to meet the restrictions that the U.S. were looking for. They easily won that contract. And do you know how much that contract was for in 1939, 1938? It was $13 million to build their aircraft for the U.S. government. You do that today, and I ran out of zeros. I tried to figure out what it would be. It's like $258 million. So they took that $13 million contract and started with the P-40 Bs and Cs. Awesome. So there is, a, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the Bs, the Cs, because there is a lot. It comes up every once in a while on the Ready Room. What was this aircraft called? So I have found it called everything from just the Hawk, or versions of it called the Hawk, the Tomahawk, the Kitty Hawk, the Warhawk, and I think that's it. So what, you know, ex explain to me sure. the naming convention of this aircraft. The Kitty Hawk was primarily what they wanted to call the P-40Bs and Cs. So we had the Curtis Hawk, and then they came out with the, the plane that won the contract, which we now know as the Tomahawk, which, of course, in the U.S. nomenclature, they had the P-40 or the Hawk 81, the Hawk 85, the Hawk 87. They, they use numbers to represent their Hawks. The names are a lot easier. To make it real simple, the Tomahawks were the early Bs and C versions. The, the British took them, and they went to combat, I believe, in December 1941, and they christened them the Tomahawk. That's where that name stuck. When the E came out, which had the larger engine, different airframe, different gun arrangement, it was called the Kitty Hawk. And different versions of that, different sub uh, versions were the Kitty Hawk Mark One, Mark Two A. And then when the U.S. got a hold of it, and we came up with a definitive version, even though there were about uh, what is that, thirteen thousand built during the war, the um, the version that was the most produced was the P40N. We like to call that the Warhawk. And Blood Red Skies terms, we could get lost with all the different. Uh, nomenclature of different versions, but let's just call it Tomahawk was the early Flying Tigers version. The Kitty Hawk is the 49th fighter group, the main P-40E. The Warhawk, we'll just call the P-40N for simple sake. Sweet. That's awesome. And, um, you know, as we uh, dive into some of the different models here, uh, it's I found it really fascinating with the P-40 because a lot of times when you look at different aircraft and the different models as it evolves through its life, there are internal changes, there are new engines, there are new superchargers, new armaments, stuff like that. But if you look at something like the 109, the core airframe and structure and shape and design of the plane didn't really change. When you look at the P-40, from the early models to the later models, there are some pretty substantial noticeable really like airframe changes to this aircraft is that correct yes that's and that is the biggest feature that to tell these different versions uh the engines the air coolers um the supercharger although it was never a two-stage supercharger they tried to make it better and they fit in different areas uh, of the aircraft changing the overall look the other aspect is the stability and the control of the aircraft. They had to extend the tail. Uh, that was a P-40F. Um, they actually tried a different engine. They tried to put the um, the Packard Merlin into that P-40F. That changed the looks. So the outside of the P-40 changed, and it takes a while to look at it to really see those differences, as opposed to like the 109, the early E's had the square wings. As soon as they went to the F's and later, you see the rounded wings. The little details of those aircraft really show themselves once you start researching it. You can instantly see the different types of tails or the air cooler or the uh, the wing loadout of weapons. Um, but, boy, there were a lot of changes. You can go crazy going down that rabbit hole. Yeah, it's really, uh, you know, the later versions, when you look at them, they just have just such a cool look like you said they got a little longer they got like a little bigger uh you know 
air air intake on the fronts of them. I mean, it really just really became a really nice looking airplane. That front uh, intake on the top got a little more sleek and you know conformal to the body. Just just a really really neat looking airplane. And uh, man, Brett, how are we we tracking here for you? Is you you able to hang on to this? Yeah, man, I'm picking it up. It sounds pretty good. I I um was reading somewhere that you know that iconic shark's mouth feature might have been borrowed from pilots that saw German aircraft or maybe one tens in Africa or something, and maybe borrowed that because it looked cool on their aircraft. And it reminds me that, you know, when I think of the P-40, I always think of like China, Burma, India theater. And I forget that Africa, that, you know, North Africa campaign was the place where they first saw service. That's correct. Now the, to go back to the shark mouth, I think uh, the guys in on 112 squadron, the, the main uh, RAF squadron that had the, the Tomahawk, the P-40C version, Somewhere they saw in a magazine the one tens of ZG twenty six seventy six. These numbers get mixed up after a while, but they had the shark mouth, and you can see that at any one ten. You can look it up on the internet and find it. Well, the guys over at the AVG saw the one twelve squadron, thought that'd be really great, and we can put that on our aircraft. And they wanted to install this superstition nature of the Japanese pilots with this flying dragon, and not only that, but also their tenacity in the air their aggressiveness led them to be called the flying tigers so that shark mouth started with the german 110s like you said the ones that flew over france and over um belgium and in, in the early stages of the war even in the battle of britain 112 squadron took it for theirs and a legend was made now just as far as we, we touched on it there a little bit, uh, the operational history of the aircraft. We all know about the Flying Tigers, right? I mean, P-40 Flying Tigers, basically like those two things are synonymous with each other. But there were other countries and air forces besides the United States and England that use these. So just, I mean, I think Russia was one. You know, was there anybody else that, you know, like, Lend-Lease stuff with these aircrafts? Yes, there was. And we could go to just about every country, every allied country flew with the P-40 in some version. The Russians had them. They didn't really treat them nice. They ran them at emergency power all the time. The harsh climate um, really took a toll on all the equipment. And a funny note about the Russians, any P-40B that we have now that we're restoring in present day seems to always come from a bog in Russia. I don't know if you ever looked into that. Anything that breaks down, we find it, we bring it back and we build it. Uh, and I, I guess, I think, uh, Australia flew them, right? They flew them down in Australia a little bit, New Zealand. Like, I mean, they, they really did get around a little bit, right? Right. Now we can even go to the Australian, use them a little bit more. Oh gosh. Uh, they were desperate for aircraft. And when we sent the P 40 E's over to them, number 75 squadron really took the war to the Japanese and was one bright spot during those early dark days. 75 Squadron helped defend Darwin. And then, of course, you know about Milne Bay. And in Australia, they they look at Milne Bay as the British do for the Battle of Britain. The P-40s really saved the day with their close air support. They're attacking uh, Japanese aircraft, ships, anything that moved. That really helped defend Australia from that tide that nobody else could stop. Man, and you know, it's probably just my, you know, my self-admitted own ignorance about World War II. But you know, I, I very easily forget that there were some, like, substantial uh, World War II actions that happened down, like, in that Australia area. It's kind of almost like a forgotten, forgotten theater, at least to me. It is, but at the same time, it's it's one that shows the desperation. Uh, and why the P-40 was actually so so needed in, in, during the first part of World War II. They needed an aircraft that could get out there. We needed the numbers. They didn't have the luxury of taking the time to research the, the airframe or the engine to make it better. Now, remember when the P-40Bs first came out, the, the government said that we want an airplane that can only fly around 15,000 feet. That's all we need. They didn't think of high altitude performance. So the 15,000 feet and below, that's 
that's something that they can really use to defend the coastal region of the United States. We didn't have time to look at a, at a supercharger. We just wanted to get this airplane available. And by doing that, we did have the numbers available to send it over to Australia to help them. The Australians use those P-40s to the extent that they found the good of the airframe. They found the, the, the strength of the airplane and they used it to the best of their ability, almost to the fact where they came up with different tactics and the higher ups of the Royal Australian Air Force were, were kind of mad that they weren't actually going to dogfight. The pilots knew they couldn't mix with the Zeros and the Oscars and, and the other Japanese aircraft at the time. They knew slashing attacks worked. When they were told to turn around and fight on a one-on-one -on -one situation, a turning dogfight, they lost some really good heroes. They lost some really good pilots. But they did hold the line, and they did fight back as best as they could. So then, uh, operationally, this aircraft, it's not something... I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing. It was towards the later years of the war, kind of got outclassed by by the newer fighters. It's not something like the 109 that you're going to see like revised, 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 and revised, and then like flying into the 50s with some air forces, right? By the end of the war, the P-40 was kind of like obsolete, and we were moving on. It served its purpose. It was a great aircraft, but it was you know new technology kind of passed it by. That's true, and some were actually used by other air forces as trainers in the early 50s. But production stopped in 44. The end model that we talked about was the ultimate of the P-40 variants, the one they build the most. And of course, it's almost action in CBI theater, which is where, you know, technological advances didn't really hit as fast as they did, let's say, on the Western Front or through Sicily and Italy up into uh, Southern Europe. But the P-40s did soldier on. They were a great ground pounder. They, they became great at close air support, and they were needed. And the P-40 did its best to, they, they used them as best as they could. And that's why when you see those P-40Ns, uh, the 80th fighter group, I believe, with the giant skull from the CBI theater, they really took the, the fight to the Japanese all the way up to, I think it was late 44. So they didn't advance as fast as the others, but what they did do is hold the line with their toughness and their ability to be a great ground attack aircraft. Awesome. You mentioned their toughness. I, I understand they have a reputation for being not only pretty well armored in, in that, but it's also pretty easy to maintain, perhaps? Yes, that was another aspect. They were so easy to, to get. Well, once again, in the war of attrition, we had the supplies. We could give new aircraft, new parts. They didn't last long in Russia because of the weather I talked about, and the winters were bad, and they slowly said, no, we don't like these, and put them off to just help out with convoy protection, but they were easy to fix. They were easy to get back up and running. And a lot of pilots uh, came home because of the toughness of that P-40. Uh, one of the leading aces, uh, the, the number one P-40 ace was Clive Caldwell. And he had an incident where his plane was shot up by two or three 109s. And they don't know how they did, how he did it, but he did manage to get back. And there were all kinds of reports of P-40s colliding with other aircraft, wings missing, three feet of wing, wings missing, and they made it back home. They got the pilots home safe, and they were easy to maintain. Maintain enough to help us hold off till the newer aircraft, like the 38s and P-51s, came online. I gather it was a, you know, it wasn't super sophisticated in some of its control surfaces and other things, but as far as, like, maybe negative aspects of the aircraft, I guess it was, you know, comparatively slow didn't have really great climb or high altitude performance i think you kind of touched on that was that are those is that kind of encompass the main maybe negative things about that aircraft yeah it was you got to remember the people the engine company the the uh the merlin their their primary engine source they didn't it was a small company they didn't have time to research for the the superchargers that were needed it was a single stage supercharger once again not good at high altitude didn't have a great climb. It was a heavy fighter. This is what really held it back. But they were able to find out that the, the, the speed and the dive, the toughness and the stability lower levels is, is what they needed. But they just couldn't get that, that time spent to develop the newer engines. And the Rolls-Royce Merlin was put in for the F like we talked about. And that was a great aircraft. That was a chance for the P-40F and the P-40 series in general to really go in a different branch and be very successful 
But then again, the Mustang came up and the Merlin people said, you know, we got to work on this airframe. We're going to take those engines back. And they switched back to uh, the Packard Merlin or the, the original engine, I'm sorry, to power their P-40s. And it just went back to where it was a low level fighter that can never really attain altitude. And that's why you never saw it on the Western front, because the higher altitude uh, battles, the P-40 just couldn't compete. Just mainly a ground pounder and, and a good defensive fighter to to go after the bombers, go after ground targets, like we said many times. It's just a, it's a strong airframe. Man, that's that's uh, excellent, excellent stuff. And uh, Brett, I'm going to kick it to you for this one, man. Let's see if you can come up with any notable aces or squad besides or squadrons besides the Flying Tigers, like some notice notable pilots or squadrons that use a P40. Hmm. You know, I wrote that card for uh, Wild Bill Kelso. Does that count? Yeah, it counts to me, man. Absolutely. That, guy's, <laughs> that guy's my hero, and that's what got the P40 into my system. Is when you saw 1941. I actually saw it at the cinema a couple times. That what a great shot of that P40 coming in. And if I get one of those leather jackets and a and a cigar and that hat, maybe that's what I'll wear to Adepticon. Well, there's some serious aces though uh, that flew the P40, right? Did um. Sure. Hill fly the P-40? Yes, he did. He flew the, the B model and the Flying Tigers. He stayed on after the Flying Tigers were absorbed into the U.S. Air Force, and he flew the P-40E and eventually took command of the 23rd Fighter Group, and he was he was a tough, tough old bird. He really knew how to take that P-40 and, and get the best out of it. And uh, Black Sheep, famous Black Sheep, uh, Pappy Boynton, first kills in a P-40, correct? Correct. He had his kills in the AVG. A lot of people, I don't know if, if you're aware of that, uh, but he started with the AVGs and he, of course, he, he went back to Corsair fame with 214. Um, but he did cut his teeth on uh, the, uh, the P40 uh, Bs and Cs of the AVG. So I have to ask, since you brought up Wild Bill Kelso, fictional P40 pilots, who wins in a dogfight? Wild Bill Kelso or Captain Rafe McCauley from Pearl Harbor? Who wins? Oh, dear God. You got to bring up Pearl Harbor. Um, we made a pact in our gaming group in Columbus. We would never bring that abomination of a movie up. I'm going to have to say Wild Bill Kelso. I don't know, Brad. Who you got? I'm just picturing Wild Bill like breaking off a beer bottle and <laughs> flying close and maybe throwing it at his opponent or something crazy, or, or maybe they both crash and then it turns into a fist fight and maybe cuts him with said bottle. I don't know. Man, I, yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting. Maybe maybe we need to hire somebody to write some fan fiction or something like that to kind of like flesh out that scenario. It might be, it might be an interesting read. I, I don't know. It might be kind of hard. It took Wild Bill quite a bit of ammunition to take down that Lockheed Electra. He wasn't really hitting the vital systems, I don't think, uh, whatever that plane, that twin-engine plane was. But the other one is the sky captains in the world of tomorrow. You're missing, who is that, Jude Law, who who was in that movie back from the early 90s, or early 2000s, that that pulp sci-fi. Do you guys remember that? Is there a that? P-40 in that? Yeah, he flew a P-40, and it was like a two-seater P-40, and it was just, <sighs> you can Google it when we leave. You can watch some clips online. Pretty, you know, it was really pulpy. But I don't think a P forty. It probably had more realistic flight envelope than Pearl Harbor did. I, I don't <laughs> understand that movie. I'm sure uh, I have no doubt that somebody on the ready room will listen to this and validate or invalidate your comments about the fictional flight envelope of the P forty. So stand by for those comments. I'm sure. I, I can't wait. My friend uh, in Columbus, Jim, the super pilot extraordinaire, he'll start sending me the link. So oh, they said this about the P forty. They they love sky captains. Why are you pissing people off? I don't know. That's just how I roll. So as far that I mean that's awesome and I like I've always liked these uh, aircraft spotlight episodes and we really need to do more of them because it kind of lets people at least learn a little something about the aircraft and maybe learn something new and if nothing else it kind of gets you looking like just for paint jobs or cool things to to do with your P40s right 
Right. But let's that's, talk about. Hold the, on one second. Hold on. You got to talk about. I know you got an idea. You got a plan here, but you just mentioned paint scheme. I don't want to go without saying this. <laughs> the P40 it. is the most beautiful aircraft to paint up. The decals for the P40 available online from Blue Falcon Miniatures, from uh, Miscellaneous Miniatures, from all over the net. You can find beautiful P40 from the giant skull from the Burma Banshees to the decorative uh, different color schemes from the 49th Fighter Group. Even the 112 Squadron Sharkmouth for the early Bs and Cs, these are probably the best aircraft to paint up if you really want to show off on the table. Sorry I had to steal your thunder there. No, it's good. And, you know, I mean, even, uh, man, I could be wrong, but 325th had some checker tail P40s, right? They did, but they were the F version. Somebody needs to come up with an STL for the F, and that's when we were talking earlier in the show about the different looks. The P40F is just as different when you look at it compared to the E as the P40B is when you look at it compared to the E. They stretch that nose out, they stretch the tail out, they got rid of the air scoop up top, and if you can find a decent P40F, right now the P40F is the holy grail of, of aircraft we are looking for, both for Blood Red Skies and also for uh, Mustangs, Messerschmitt's the 172nd scale game that I play. The 325th Checker Tail really made a name for themselves. They were the equivalent of the 112 Squadron as RAF or the equivalent to the 75 Squadron for Australia that we talked about. They took that P-40. They took the fight to the Germans. Herky Green was a famous pilot that flew. And you could have a lot of fun if you take your P-40Fs. Unfortunately, in the, the game, I don't think we have stats for the F. We just have the B, E, and N. Sorry to throw all these names out. But if we can come up with something for the F or get them on the table, they had the checker tails on to uh, let the B-17s know they were an allied fighter. That's where that came from. So they are a gorgeous aircraft, a long-winded answer to say, yes, the 325th took that P-40 to the, to the uh, axis as hard as they could. Yeah, I mean, and like you said, some of the, yeah, I mean, just some, some great, great uh paint jobs on p40s besides the iconic shark's mouth like there's just man if you're into painting the p40s do look great so now into blood red skies different versions how it plays and i'm interested to dive into this aircraft uh you know is this good stats bad stats typical you know kind of like nerf fest of a uf airplane you know nerf or nothing <laughs> You know, so let's let's talk about them a little bit. And like you said, we're going to start with the early version. P-40B, and correct me if I'm wrong, from what you said earlier, this is a Tomahawk? Kitty yeah, Hawk? it would be a Tomahawk. We'll, Tomahawk. We'll go Tomahawk. Yep. So we're going to say P-40B Tomahawk, speed 7, 2 agility, 1 firepower, great dive, robust... Does come with poor quality, but the bargain basement of 24 points. So we have a 721 aircraft, great dive and robust. We've kind of already said poor quality. We're not really caring about it. Gives us that bargain basement of 24 points. How are you feeling about that, Brett? Man, that's a really that's a really low price. And speed seven's not terrible. Agility 2 is not terrible. I don't know. It's worth considering. And I think I've been beaten on the table by these. Uh, I think it might have been P-40Bs. Really? At a, at a GOE. Wow. Man, you know, so I'm looking at the B now. And one, 24 points. So it's an alternative aircraft to like the Yak Swarm Fest, right? You right. are getting hit with the one firepower. It is a speed seven, and with that great dive, you know, it's giving you that extra boost of speed. Like, is this one case where at 24 points, great dive is kind of helping you out a little bit here? Like, we're actually kind of in favor of this great dive, maybe? I think maybe, check me if I'm wrong, but maybe like the real thing, you might want to play this really aggressively if you had kind of a swarm of them going. What this sounds like to me is is like the P-40 being designed and then actually getting into combat. And the pilots are saying, wow, this airplane's pretty good. It's like what you guys are doing right now. Once you're looking at it, 
get it out there, get it on the table, you can see the bonus. With it. I like that great dive. I think a couple episodes ago, uh, I think uh, Dr. Glover didn't like that great dive too much. I'm finding that to be a really useful way to get out of Dodge, circle around and come back. You could pair this with low altitude performance and feel good about it from a historical standpoint and you know, get to exploit that great dive with it and probably play it fairly effectively with speed seven. I think uh, throw in some great dive and, you know, do those quote unquote slashing attacks where you're just flying in, fighting the fight on your, you know, on your terms and then getting the heck out of Dodge and turning around, coming back at it if you can. What I found best with great dive and in all the P40 variants that I've played, uh, if if you're going up against the bombers, any kind of bomber intercept, you can get past the fighters with that great dive to come around and get behind the bombers and start pecking at them. No matter, even with your firepower one, I take superior armament to get that extra die. Although I always lose it halfway through the game. I can't make that pilot skill. But still, I find that that great dive allows you to get past the fighters, zoom around and make the mission happen. Man, I am. Yeah, I'm actually. I'm. Um kind of intrigued by this now and originally i really wasn't but you know i mean poor quality are we all kind of in agreement that at least from a if you're in a list building standpoint that we're really not concerned with poor quality at this point have we all agreed on that agreed yeah i don't i don't see that as a detriment because unless you're getting to combat first turn if somebody can zoom ahead and get that shot at extra range i forget what card that is poor quality is really nothing Brett, how you you kind of in the same boat as that? Poor quality, like no concern with that? Yeah, I tend to agree that poor quality can be mitigated, especially if you've got clouds on the tables or, you know, those kind of things. I don't I don't think it's going to be a, a terrible thing. Now, if this is all assuming we're playing, what is it? Uh, open, is it uh, open deck? Well, the fight, what is it? I can't remember. Oh, dogfight. Dogfight, yeah. I was going to say fighter sweep, and I knew that wasn't right. Right, right. Yeah, the dogfight scenario. I wonder how much that would be of a concern if that uh, that kind of paradigm changed, you know, if we had a different starting setup, a deployment, different deployment setup. But it, with dogfight, I think, yeah, I'm not too concerned about poor quality. Is there any setup that you guys have combat turn one? I mean, is that scenario-driven? Is there any, we, we kind of just put the airplanes on the table and have fun or make up our own scenario as we go. But is there something where you could be worried about that poor quality? Or we I just think if you were playing the bounced scenario and you were the defender with P 40s, you know, or any poor, if you're a defender with any poor quality aircraft, it'd be a very, very bad spot in that bounce scenario. Other than that, I think, Deployment happens far enough away that there would really have to be something kind of go wrong to have combat that first turn. Is there any relevance to any kind of like um, uh, deployment high cover shenanigans that would make poor quality maybe a little risky? Yeah, I don't know, because if you're doing a high cover shenanigan, your planes aren't coming in that first turn anyway. They would come in at the end of the first turn, and then you wouldn't be able to even use them until the second turn. So I don't know that that would would really affect anything and just the way I'm kind of thinking about it in my, in my mind. Yeah. Even without pilot with it, without regard, I mean, uh, you have at least one chance to climb beyond yeah, exactly. uh, disadvantage. So, yeah. I mean, I yeah, guess I if you were playing matter. somebody who had a great climb card and they could kind of block you from doing that, that first turn, right. That could certainly play into effect there. So I guess there are ways, but I don't think for the bargain basement of of what was it twenty four points that I'm gonna be worrying about that. That plane's actually intriguing me a lot more now, talking about it here than it really ever did. I'm kind of discovering it here in my mind for the first time. Right, and if you did have that poor quality, you could hit low and slow. There are many anecdotes from World War II of of P40s getting hit before they get into position. And vice versa, they hit the 109s, which the later model 109s were heavy, and they couldn't really get in get into the as fast as the F version. The Gs were really heavy, I should say. They couldn't get into position fast enough, and the P40s could jump them. But I think we're kind of beating a dead horse where the poor quality for that price of 24, take as many as you can get, and don't worry about it. Sweet. And then if we move on to the E model, I would say this is your kind of standard fare. It's seven speed, two agility, two firepower, 
7-2-2 with great dive and robust at 34 points. So 7-2-2, great dive, robust, 34 points. Uh, how are we feeling about that? Uh, you know, I'm kind of comparing that to the 109E, I think, from a price standpoint. I think that's right there. And I like the great dive. I've always enjoyed playing that. You're going to give up great climb, but robust is a, I think robust is a pretty good card to have. I mean, uh, it just depends on play style, but I think it could get you out of some jams and afford you to play pretty aggressively. Like I was thinking with the P40B, of course, don't have the same price, but 34 points is still it seems to me like the break point is right around 38 points so if you're below that and that's just my perspective from playing 109s a lot um so that 34 points for the p40e seems to be a little on the lower price side i kind of like it and that's why i like that two for firepower i know it's just one die i know you just rolling one more die when you're going after your target but that two firepower for me makes all the difference and robust has saved me more times than not. So 34 points, if you're saying that's equal to the 109, is that the E109 you're talking? I don't have that sheet up. But if it is any version of the 109 under the, well, there's only the E, the, do we have the 109F stats also here? Yeah, yeah, we have those. Um, I think the E is 34 points. I'm just going off memory, but uh, you sure. can check me and see how I'm on, on that. But It's just a great stat for an airplane you can flood the field with um you gotta watch your pilot skills you know when you're gonna pick that tournament list if you're gonna use that but all in all i have found that p40e just to be fun with that great dive robust really throws it off if you're going uh historically against japanese players of course they got flammable or what is that vulnerable sorry and that really helps out so the p40 really starts standing on its own and and you can do that, let me hear your guns from 1941, and everybody just has a good time around the table. Yeah, I'm I'm in 100% agreement with you that two firepower to me is is basically essential when list building. It just is a, it is a game changer. And Brett, man, you just touched on something kind of mathematically that I want to talk about here when we talk about the N. And I know I said mathematically, so people are like, you know, ready to laugh and point and get out their calculators and check me here. The P40N is coming in at, it's a speed eight. So you're bumping up your speed to agility, to firepower, same stats, great dive and robust at 38 points. So for four points more, it's the same aircraft, but you're getting that one extra speed so where are you feeling about like where are you feeling between that 38 to 34 points well 38 that's my i was saying 38 i think is around my break point i pulled up my german stat cards and uh, you know i like to play the the 109g and that's a 37 point aircraft uh, and it's a considerable upgrade in my mind from the 109e which is 31 points but um does not have the kind of firepower we were talking about in some of the other aircraft so i think price wise 38 i think we're kind of right around the same ballpark that i'm used to playing uh, i'm used to playing a 228 aircraft with two traits uh what's the uh what's the agility again on the it isn't eight two. It's that two two eight or eight two two, like you were talking about there. So it's right. yeah, it's the same. Yeah, you know, I am gonna. So it's interesting here when we talk about these stats, right? The price to add one pilot skill to your squadron is twenty five points, right? So to take any one pilot and up them one skill level is twenty five points. Now, if you consider that the average list is six aircraft, right? Right. 34 to 38 points, that's only freeing up 24 points. 
So switching six aircraft at four points per aircraft is only freeing up 24 points, which isn't even enough to increase one pilot, one pilot skill. So is there any reason at all to take a 722 at 34 points compared to an 822 at 38 points? I'm feeling like it's not even giving you a pilot skill. Like what would the advantage B, maybe squeeze in a named ace potentially? Well, I think it's all about narrative, though. Um, you're, you're making a point. You want to take the end. You want to try to squeeze the best pilot combination. And I'm sure Don has already done that. We'll probably see it now if he hears this video and wants to show what he knows about the P-40 at the next tournament. But at the same time, if you're doing something narrative and you are in the South Pacific in 1943, I don't think any tournament's really going by that. We're just taking whatever airplane works. But there's no real, I mean, take the end, try to get as many good pilots in. I don't think a named ace would help you. You want to keep it as low as possible to get that additional airplane in. What have you seen tournament lists at? Is it typically six aircraft or have you seen less? Because when I was going to do my G55s, I had enough points for just five aircraft with one ace. But what do you think that you would do with the end? Two aces or you want to stick with the E? Man, I think with the N, I would do the standard six aircraft and just like spitballing off the top of my head. Probably no, probably no ace, a couple fours, a couple threes, a couple twos would probably get it under the points. Uh, but I feel like that's kind of the standard is the six aircraft. But, you know, honestly, recently uh, the creativity has come out and there's been a lot of people having success with less aircraft. That's for sure. The game has certainly evolved uh in that aspect I, I feel like i've definitely noticed that i was thinking i would probably play it a lot the way i play the bf 109 g and it's really just about the same stats and same same points but the, what i would do differently is i would probably play more defensive traits to try to maximize what you're getting from the robust and play the great dive defensively with low altitude performance yeah, it's kind of defensive in my mind uh, that's okay. probably what I would do. Whereas I feel like what's a little funky about the 109 is that uh, it's you, you got this offensive thing and a defensive thing, if you will. And, right. and so it's tough to like lean all in in one aspect of that. I think if I was playing the N, I'd probably build a list a lot like my 109G list, but I would intentionally try to be more defensive and just look for opportunities to... Uh, fly by real fast, get some shots in and it, but not, but not get decisively engaged, right? Like get out of there, try to dive away and then turn around and come back in and take shots where I can. That, that's pretty good to try that make it as defensive as you can. You really play into the strengths of what the P 40 was. And I don't think this game can really point out the differences in the one Oh nine G compared to the P 40. Uh, I know some of the ends, I think that was a Kitty Hawk Mark three in British terms, uh, or the Mark IV, it did fight some 109Gs near the end of its air-to-air air um, air roll until it became strictly a ground pounder. But it fared okay when it had the position like we talked about. In the scope of the game that Blood Red Skies is, I, I think I would take that end just to get that robust, and that would mitigate... 109 would use their great dive, of course, to help out, but that robust would really help out in a lot of situations as an allied player. Yeah, and the, the cool thing about that robust trait is you can play it a little bit more aggressively on the offensive side, and if you kind of get in a spot, that robust is going to bail you out one or two times throughout the course of the game, you know? So it's like you can be a little more aggressive than you would if it didn't have that robust trait. That might that might lead to some, lead to some interesting stuff. Yeah, maybe squeeze an ace in there with tough. Wow, yeah, that, that would really be good. You know, like I said, you're really, really leaning into one aspect. You know, you got one thing that's, you know, well, one thing, I mean, one aspect. Uh, I, I look at great dive as being, if you combine that with low altitude performance and this speed of eight, you could really get out of trouble potentially, even if you're disadvantaged, right? So that's defensive in my mind. Of course, robust, I think we could all say that's a, a, a defensive trait. So, okay, let's, let's just maximize that, like to exploit that to the max, then I'm thinking maybe my, maybe I'm going to do a ace that has a defensive trait and uh, just try to outlast 
and then if I can, if I can pitch out of the, 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 you know, the, the scrum and come back at it from another angle, then, uh, you know, take shots where I can, but just keep, keep flying out of the big tangle of, uh, the big fur ball in the middle of the table, just keep flying through that shooting as I go. Maybe I'll get some, uh, you know, avoid getting hurt too bad myself and inflict some boom chits on my opponent. That's probably how I try to fly it. I've done that with some success with the G's and the G's aren't uh, as defensive as this idea could be. So, uh, just using that, using that great dive tactic and that, um, firepower of two to do what I'm describing, kind of zipping back and forth across the table, my best games and probably my most, um, decisive wins have been where I've been able to fly like that in the game. And I think this, this, uh, stat line and trait line could, uh, have some real potential in that type of gameplay. If you enjoy it that way. Yeah. I, like I said, I honestly haven't really given a thought to this aircraft, but man, the more I look at these stats, I'm liking it. And I'm kind of thinking like stats are cool. Uh, looks awesome on the table. Some great paint jobs, man. I might, there might be some P forties in my future. Now these stats, like it sounds like we're all in agreement that, uh, uh, you know, we feel like it actually, these stats are actually pretty indicative of the real life aircraft. I think so. I heard some stories about how, uh, they were so well armored that pilots would intentionally do head on shots because they felt like they could, you know, they could take it. And maybe with robust, that's the kind of thing that you could, you could do and plan to get away with it. Now that we've talked about these traits and we've talked about the stats of these aircraft and we've uh, looked into them a little bit, are we going to actually kind of tip our caps and say, man, they got it right. These are decent stats. Not only are they decent stats, the great dive fits. These stats are indicative of what a historically accurate P-40 should fly like in this game. Do we have to kind of eat our words here a little bit with this U.S. aircraft? I think you're you're right. I think that they are statted right. I think the great dive works. I like it. And just hearing Brett wanting to change things around a bit, and and explore the defensive nature. I think they are statted correct. Yeah, how about you, Brett? What are you thinking? Yeah, it seems like, you know, I'm no expert, but it seems like what I've read and stuff about their performance, robust and great dive are really appropriate and uh you know, I, I think uh I don't see a whole lot of other traits historically that you know, it's not a, a it's not a it's not a lot to go to to add to it. You know, it's not like we're if we were making a card today that there would be a lot of other things we'd want to bolt on there. I think this is a pretty clean description, I think of uh, what you get. And it looks like it could be a lot of fun to play. I am definitely going to, like I said, tip my cat on this one, tip my cat. I am going to tip my cap on this one. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's right. They did it. It's a it's a good solid American aircraft that's accurate. I think it'd be fun and uh yeah, this is this is it. I'm happy. I think if you mix in the theater cards, maybe superior armament, pick some other fun ones, even more joy out of the P40. Yeah, I I could see some of these in my future. I'm liking the paint scheme, I'm liking the traits, I'm liking the stats, I'm liking the points. I could yeah, I mean, I think I'm a believer. I, th- I think I'm going to see some P-40s in my future. And, uh, man, I got to tell you, Steve, I really enjoyed this. Uh, we've been going for over an hour here about the P-40. I learned a ton, man. You're super knowledgeable about it. It was great. Uh, is there anything you want to add on the P-40 before we head out? Just that if you're looking for some decent models, check out Lead Pursuit Store. You'll find some beautiful kits and build them up, paint them, bring them to Adepticon. 
Nice. Brett, anything you want to add before we sign off here? No, I really appreciate this deep dive. You know, I think I am um, kind of interested in these for their simplicity. I feel like any of these really kind of support, especially the P40N, really seem familiar to the my typical way I like to play and might even be a more simple option, you know, without as many, uh, without as many different things going on, I could really focus on one aspect of gameplay with this. It could make it a lot, uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, I am, uh, Brett, I'm with you. I'm really liking it. I'm enjoying it. Uh, so man, with that, Steve, thanks again. Uh, it was a ton of fun. I really enjoyed it. Brett, as always, is a pleasure. And we are trying always on the lookout for some new catchy sign-off phrase. But for tonight, we're going to go with, may you always be advantaged. Thanks for listening to the Pursuit Podcast. That idea of three pick two is kind of exciting. And then, you, you know, as a player, kind of get... Depending on, I don't know how you intend to play the play the game, that that mission you might exploit something uh, differently from one game to the next. I don't know. No, it's I a good thought, idea. And I'm then, not sure exactly how that would play out, but I thought it was a, it really sparked my interest when I heard that. So that is a good idea, but it has one fatal flaw to it, and that is the fact that somebody in America thought of it, so it will never be in Blood Red Skies. Oh, curses. <laughs>